Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre, all the sorrows grow on your wail. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Mero Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore or mythology, retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan. I am your host and your Fireside Bart. Welcome to episode 56 of Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. We are coming to you, as always, from the beautiful surroundings of the Headstuff Podcast Network Studios here in Dublin. I hope you are all well. If this is your first time listening, please at least go back to the first podcast part of these Thawne series uh, only two episodes ago if not to the very beginning to see what we're building up to if you are a continued listener thank you so much for your continued support please do continue to uh, subscribe and leave ratings on iTunes Spotify wherever you get your podcasts it really does make a difference please do follow me on Instagram at firesidebard all one word or if you really like it uh, please support the patreon.com forward slash fireside podcast that's all those bits out of the way, is it? Yes, welcome along to part three of the Thorn. We are really in it now. We are in the third part of the great epic of the Ulster cycle of Irish mythology. And this is, this was my favourite part of it so far. And I'm just taking it part by part. This has proven to be, this is what I was building up to. When I first started to do this podcast, this is what I wanted to do, and we're really in the midst of it now. Um, and I'm not going to just ramble and say nothing for nothing's sake. I'm going to get right down to it. We'll chat down a bit more afterwards. But here we have The Thorn, part three on Fireside. The Thorn, part three, The Morrigan. The cattle raid of Cooley rages. The collected armies of Queen Maeve, some 57,000 strong, had entered Ulster in search of Don Cuna, the brown bull of Cooley. The armies of Ulster were laid low by the birth pangs cursed upon them by the goddess Macha. Ulster king Conchobar MacNassa had forced Macha to race him while the woman was heavily pregnant, and as punishment, the battle goddess had cursed every boy and man in the province to feel the pangs of childbirth whenever they would enter conflict. Because of this, the armies of Ulster were totally incapacitated and unable to defend their province from invasion or Duncuna, one of Ulster's prized possessions, from being captured. The only one not affected by the pangs of Ulster was the young Cook Cullen, the greatest warrior the province had ever known. He was unaffected by the pangs because he was descended from the gods and was of noble mortal birth. 
Cúchulainn was dispatched from Eamon Macha from the court of his uncle, King Cúncabar MacNassa, and tasked with delaying the armies of Maeve from reaching Cooley and stealing the bull. For any other living soul, this preposterous task would have been over before the first sword was drawn. For Cúchulainn, it was sport. He set out with only his charioteer leg for company and laid a series of challenges for the rival armies to overcome. When three challenges proved too much for all except Fergus MacRoke, the exiled former King of Ulster, Queen Maeve began to send out warriors to hunt Cúchulainn. But when Cúchulainn sent Maeve and Alil back the severed head of their own son, they realised the length the Hound of Ulster would go to. And that was just the beginning. Using his slingshot, Cúchulainn had smashed the head of the charioteer who had delivered the head of Maeve and Alil's son. The hound then made a vow that every day he would attempt to smash the heads of his Connacht enemy, king and queen. Cúchulainn's aim was astonishing, but the sheer volume of defence around Alil and Maeve blocked his shots, and the fact that the warrior queen never stopped moving. But Cúchulainn did succeed in sniping at least 100 warriors a day. His sling may have missed their intended targets, but they never missed. Blood drenched the camp of the armies of Maeve. A sense of dread and foreboding pervaded, as never outside of battle had soldiers felt so constantly in danger. That any moment a stone would shatter their brains all over the canvas of their tents. But speaking of all this blood, what of the creature this whole affair was over? What of the brown bull of Cooley? Well, Don Cuna stood grazing in his field. He was such a size that fifty children could play on his back, and often did. His some fifty heifers around him, and a host of guards. He was visited by the battle goddess of war and death, the Morrigan. The Morrigan appeared, as she so often did, in raven form. She landed on the back of this colossal bull and spoke in his ear, O oh, Dark One, the blood that is being shed over you. They come to claim you and bring you to Connacht. You must leave this place. The brown bull of Cooley heeded the words of the Morrigan and began to buck the children playing on his back off. His wranglers and cowherds tried to control him, but many of the children perished, either from being flung off or trampled in the confusion. All tried to avoid Duncuna's horns, for those that came in their path were gored by them, and their entrails littered the plain. The bull left his bloodied field, and his fifty heifers followed, and no one, not even from Ulster, knew where he went. But back at the camp of Alil and Maeve, the Connacht king said, This is madness. We haven't even found the bull yet. A hundred of our men are dying every day, and we haven't even fought one battle. We've just played his games. At this rate, our armies will be halved by the time Ulster recovers from its birth pangs. If we cannot defeat him, perhaps we can win him over, said Maeve. Offer him all the lands and cattle and women we can, and offer too much for a young man to refuse. There is nothing you can offer him, said Fergus MacRoke. He has slain his own son for Ulster. He cannot be bought. 
Then what do you propose, Fergus? There must be some way of reasoning with the Kerr. There is. To Cullen, this is all sport. So make it sport. Ask him to stop killing by slingshot and start by single combat. This will ease tension in the camp and give us more time to plan our attack. Alil concurred. In the worst scenario, we will only lose one man a day rather than a hundred. So Fergus MacRoke was sent to deliver this proposal to Cucullan himself. Fergus was followed by a proud and insolent youth named Ettercommel. He himself was a foster son of Alil and Maeve. Turn back, boy. This will be too dangerous. I want to see this hound of Ulster. Can you not put me under your protection? Only if you promise to not insult him. I'm hardly going to do that. Fergus and Ettercommel reached the place where Cúlcullen and his charioteer leg were at rest. The hound recognised the Ulster king. Welcome, friend Fergus. Although you fight for my enemy's army, you are an Ulster man, and I have nothing but respect for you. Would I had a feast to offer you. You're very gracious, Cúlcullen, but today all I deliver is a message from that very queen. Having heard his fellow Ulsterman out, Cúlcullen agreed to stop the slingshot attacks and only fight one soldier a day in single combat. This was a mutually beneficial arrangement. The armies of Maeve would suffer far fewer casualties and Cúlcullen could stall for time until the armies of Ulster had recovered from their birth pangs. Fergus MacRoke left greatly satisfied with this result, knowing well Cúlcullen would never have accepted it from anyone else. But it was as they were leaving, Cúlcullen spotted Ettercommel. The young Connacht man seemed unhappy. You there, boy. Have I upset you in some way? Not upset, just disappointed slightly, said Ettercommel. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Please tell me why. I know you were a fearsome warrior of the greatest ability, and I suppose I was just expecting you to look more impressive. It was well known that Cúlcullen couldn't grow a beard. It is why there is so much debate as to what age he was at the time of the tawn. It was a very sore subject with the Hound of Ulster. You are a lucky boy that Fergus is my friend and that you have his protection, or I would murder you where you stood. You won't have to wait long to fight. I will be the first to face you in single combat tomorrow. We will see who wins. And the arrogant youth rode off. Except he didn't ride far. Edder Cammel waited until Fergus was back at the camp before deciding, I will face Cúlcullen tonight, before even the first single combat. I will defeat him and all will remember my name. And Edder Cammel turned his horse around and rode back the way he had come. Uh, Cúlcullen, said his charioteer leg. The two were lying by the fireside staring up at the stars when the charioteer thought he heard something. He looked out. I think that boy who is with Fergus is coming back. What? Did he forget something? He looks like he's ready to fight. No one can be that stupid. But someone was that stupid. 
Ettercommel arrived and dismounted before drawing his sword and demanding, Cucullin, here, tonight, we fight. Boy, go home. You don't want this. I absolutely do. Fight me. You are under Fergus's protection. I will not fight you. Some hound of Ulster refuses a challenge just because it's at night. You're happy to kill my fellow soldiers with stones and slingshots, but you refuse honest combat. At this, Cucullin swiped the grass under where Ettercommel stood, taking the boy off his feet but leaving him otherwise unharmed. You truly have no idea the amount of ways I could kill you. Leave. I will not. Fight. So Cucullin cut the armour and cloth from Ettercommel's back, leaving him naked but untouched. Stop flirting with me and attack. I'll have your head. And Cucullin cut the hair of Ettercommel until it was skin tight. That is how easy I could have yours. But it became clear Ettercommel was not going to retreat. There was only one way for it to end, and soon Cucullin lost his temper. He raised his sword high in the air and brought it down through Ettercommel in one clean sweep. He split the boy in two like a piece of fruit. The two halves parted like wilting petals. The swipe was so sharp the wounds cauterized and no entrails spilled over Cucullin's camp. Of course, Fergus MacRoke noticed Ettercommel had not followed him home, so returned to Cucullin and saw the horrifying sight of the split youth. Cucullin, you have shamed yourself. This boy was under my protection. Fergus, I have nothing but respect for you. You know that. The boy would not leave. He would not be reasoned with. His arrogance blinded him. I had to be merciful and put him out of his misery. Fergus knew Cucullin was right. You did what you could. The boy was a proud and stupid prick. It's my fault. I shouldn't have let him come. I am sorry, Cucullin. It is I who have shamed you. And Cucullin helped Fergus attach a spancel hoop to the foot of each half of Ettercommel and to the back of Fergus's chariot. The body was then dragged back to Queen Maeve and every time the road was bumpy it would split apart again and every time it was smooth it would join back together. This is a monstrous way for a boy to have been slaughtered, said Maeve upon seeing the corpse. It was better than he deserved said Fergus, and so too will be the fate of many more who you will send to fight the Hound of Ulster. And one by one, day by day, Queen Maeve sent men to meet Cucullin at the ford of the river where he cut them into tiny pieces. Cucullin made it more than sport. It was art. It was his expression to see the variety of ways he could cut down those who dared oppose him. Even with the constant tide of the river, it seemed it never didn't flow with blood. Of all those who were sent to fight Cucullin, none even posed a challenge. But one night after Cucullin had decapitated his opponent, a particularly boring way for the fight to have ended, there was a beautiful woman waiting for him back at the camp. Who are you? he asked. I am the daughter of a chieftain. I have heard the great tales of you, Hound of Ulster. 
You are single-handedly defending our province from invasion. I cannot fight, but there is one way I can help. And I'm yours, tonight. I don't fight this war for the reward of a woman. I have a wife at home who I would rather have for company. Be gone. All I need is rest. The woman scorned suddenly did not seem quite the innocent creature. If you will not accept my help, then fear my hindrance. Cucullin felt amused by this. What could you possibly do to hinder me? You fight at the ford. I will take the form of an eel and wrap around your legs and pull you off your feet. Do that, and I'll crush your ribs with my toes, and you shall carry that injury in whatever form you take, and only I will be able to heal you, which I never will. Then I'll become a wolf and chase a herd of heifers into the ford to attack you. Then you shall receive a shot from my sling to the eye. Then I'll be the heifer to lead the stampede to trample you. Then another stone shall break your leg, and both injuries you shall keep in whatever form you take, and only I will have the power to heal you, and I never will. The woman left Cucullin and bided her time. The Hound of Ulster continued to slay the army of Connacht one by one, day by day. Enough time passed that during one fight, Cucullin felt the grasp of an eel under his feet. He tripped into the river and narrowly avoided the fatal swing of his opponent's sword. He found the eel and crushed it, its ribs between his toes, before slaying his opponent. More time passed, and Cucullin was toying with that day's unfortunate challenger when he spotted a she-wolf circling the river. The wolf drove a herd of cattle to the ford, and the distracted Cucullin was cut on the arm. He grappled and flung his opponent across the ford before firing a slingshot into the wolf's eye. As Cucullin approached his opponent to continue the battle, he was knocked down by the stampeding cattle. He got to his feet and fired another shot at the leg of the lead heifer who collapsed into the river and the herd dissipated. Cucullin was weak, and the still battle-hungry opponent suddenly seemed a fairer fight. Cucullin did eventually defeat and slay his opponent yet again, but the Hound of Ulster had been well and truly rattled. Cucullin returned to his camp, weary from the ordeal. He came upon a haggard old crone milking a cow who had three tits. Cucullin asked the woman for milk, and she gladly obliged. She gave him milk from the first tit, and he said, Good health to the giver. As Cucullin drank, the old woman's lungs and ribs felt stronger. The hound drank from the second tit, and her leg could move once again. And with the third tit, her empty eye socket filled in. The old woman said, I thought you said you would never heal me. Cucullin was shocked. You! I wouldn't have healed you if you hadn't deceived me. Who are you? I am the battle goddess. I am war. I am death. You are a mighty warrior, Hound of Ulster. But always remember, you are at the total whim and mercy of the gods. And when you fight, you are mine. And the woman took the form of the battle raven once more, and the morrigan flew away. And all of Cuchulain's success in battle melted away. 
It did not matter how many of Maeve's men he cut down. Victory was never certain. He was still just a man. To be continued. And there we have part three of the Tawn, the story of single combat and the Morrigan on Fireside. Oh, yes. I really, really liked this one. I've been adoring... Oh, beg your pardon. I've been adoring adapting the Tawn these last couple of weeks, but this... Part three was where it was really starting to get into a challenge in that I'm adapting a novel and trying to do a streamlined... Um, clear as water, as I say, version of a novel-length story, trying to just um, condense it and not make a synopsis version of it, but my version of it. And I've given myself as many episodes as it needs, and I hope obviously you felt that there's been enough girth in each episode. They have been three long stories so far, so that makes me feel like I'm not uh, certainly doing too little in each story. But it can be hard to not just make it chapter by chapter and to try and make, for at least some part, each part feel like its own beginning, middle and end, its own tale. And I felt that to a certain degree with the first two parts, less so last week, but uh, definitely with this week, there was certainly a framing device to it in, of course, uh, the Morrigan and... The Morrigan is one of my all-time favourites. She's one of the all-time greatest characters in all of Irish mythology. And she hasn't really got a dedicated episode yet. She's just kind of popped up in a couple of different places. But the Tawn is where she really features most prominently. And it is actually the earliest recorded or written down sources of her existence. Even though the Ulster Cycle comes second in the... uh, pantheon of uh, of Irish mythology the Morrigan appears first in written text in the Ulster cycle because and it's no surprise because it's the most well preserved of all the cycles uh, but it's one that she is the most prominently featured in and of course she appears in her form of the raven of the battle raven uh, which is usually in the form of Bav it's Bav Maka Neiman so we have we have Maka, of course, already from the very first story of the Ulster Cycle, which was the birth pangs of Ulster, how they came about. Um, and Maka is a part of the uh, the the Morrigan as well, and is what Eamon Maka, the place where Kunkabar has his keep, is named after. But here we have the crow, or the raven, appearing to the brown bull of Cooley, who we finally meet, and we... You really can't overemphasize just how big this bull is supposed to be. And I suppose the fact that 50 children, 5-0, the fact that that many children can play on his back does give some kind of idea of the colossal size of this, which adds to the, the hilarity of them losing him where they can't find the bull once he disappears. Neither Ulsterman nor, nor Maeve or any of her army is able to find the bull, which even things out a little bit. We continue to be fascinated by, uh, or I do at least, by Fergus, because Fergus, we have Fergus meeting Cucullin here and changing the goalposts a little bit. This is because the Tawn is known for its series of single combats 
And it seems that if Cucullan had such the upper hand, why would he agree to these terms? And I like that idea of of tying in with Cucullan's relative youth that continues to be sport for him. And making it a series of single combats really makes sense for both parties here. If Cucullan is winning, then it means they will only lose one soldier a day instead of the hundreds they were losing to his slingshot attacks. And for the armies of Ulster, who are still trying to overcome these birthing pangs, this uh, this gives them more time to recover their army. So this series of single combats is of great benefit to both armies. What it's not of great benefit to is necessarily storytelling, because in a couple of these chapters in Thomas Kinsley's brilliant adaptation of the Tawn, it is just a series of this person went out and this person was killed and this person went out and this person was killed. With some incredible exceptions, of course, um, Etter Kamel, this youth who goes with Fergus to negotiate these terms and ends up insulting Cucullin, he is known as the first person who challenged Cucullin in single combat. And I loved just this this idea of, of him calling Cucullin out and him insulting Cucullin's army. His honour, rather. And I do love came up, the beardless nature came up. Because, of course, in many versions, Cucullin is supposed to be a young boy um, he's supposed to be no more than 17 I think he's a bit older than that in my version certainly with with the amount of accomplishments I said this last week I just think it does undermine it a little bit if we are believing Cucullin was training with Scathoc in arms and betting her enemies and her daughter at the age of 7 I like to age Cucullin up a little bit because we can still play with the fact that he died around the age of 13, 33 as our Jesus, Jesus Hercules as he is but <clears throat> Um, here we have Etter Kamel calling Cucullin out because he is beardless. And maybe it's because I can't grow a beard myself, even at the age of 27, of any kind. But there's just something beautifully humanizing, if nothing else, about this perfect, perfect ultimate warrior of Ireland being incapable of growing a beard and being sensitive about it. So I loved the idea of an opportunity to to feature that because Etter Kamel has heard of this great warrior who slayed all these people and has um, achieved all these accomplishments and yet he just appears as a as a young boy, a young beardless man and so he's disappointed with that and Cucullin having such respect for Fergus even though he's fighting for the enemy army and not wanting to kill this youth and ending up just ripping the man in half like it was such an incredible, like, again, you get to the real blood and guts of the thorn, of this image of him bringing a sword down and slicing him perfectly in two like a piece of fruit. And of then a Fergus, that was my favourite image of all, of Fergus tying each half of the body to the back of the chariot and that on smooth roads the pieces seem to form together and then on bumpy roads they pierce apart. Um incredible, incredible stuff, incredible original images that I've never seen or read anywhere else. And uh, R.I.P. Etter Kamel, the first single combat and definitely not the last. But it is with the Morrigan. The Morrigan allowed me to give me this framing device for this story because with an aim of having this in a several chapters, my adaptation of the Thorn, um, and trying to have each one stand on its own to some degree 
you kind of have to look at like if I was telling the story in one sitting what are the bits I'd include you know if I was trying to tell not necessarily the quickest version but certainly like a short enough version orally off the top of my head what are the elements that I think should be important and should be included and definitely the morrigan is a huge huge element of that because if these challengers pose such a little threat to Cucullin where is the challenge for him where is our interest in staying with this story and that comes in the form of the morrigan the morrigan is the constant reminder of Cucullin's own mortality that his success ultimately no matter how great he is is still at the whim of a higher power and he still has a fate and the morrigan as that war goddess can interfere and she can decide who wins a battle at any time and at that point, like she warns Duncuna, at that point it seems she is on Ulster's side, if anything. And so she would appear she would be on Cullen's side because of his success. But she just has this friendly reminder. She appears to him in the form of this beautiful young woman who he spurns. I love the idea because we've established before Cullen has no problem sleeping with another woman. But here he spurns the love of another woman because of a nobility reason that he's not doing... He's not fighting for that and he's just tired after all of his fighting and these this this woman feels scorned and so sets about these series of challenges taking the form of this eel and taking the form of a she-wolf and of cattle to hinder Cucullin, which he overcomes but nearly does die in each of those single combats. So the Morrigan is a brilliant, brilliant character and a brilliant element to humanise Cullen and just to remind him never to get too cocky. And she has formed an absolutely essential part of this story. And this will not be the last time she appears in the Tawn, certainly, or the last time that any of the gods of the Tuatheidanan appear. And I, of course, love whenever one of the gods of the Tuatheidanan does make an appearance in a later cycle because this is what we have been building up to at the year at the end of the Ulster cycle we will have all four cycles laid before us and you can listen to them in any order and hear each of the different respective cycles being referenced in the other ones and I love the idea of that of the wider universe the the extended universe of Irish mythology that they have their differences but they are all this one connected pantheon and there's no better example of that than the Morrigan. So I'm going to wrap things up there. I was very happy with that episode. I hope you were too. I hope you're enjoying the Thawne. Please do continue to send me your feedback. I've been getting some absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous messages on Instagram at Fireside Bard. It's the best way to contact me, best way to find out about live shows or what I'm doing. Um, so please do continue to follow me and um, send me messages on that. If I haven't replied to your message yet, I promise you I will. I'm not so inundated that I can't uh, read and reply to everyone so far anyway. Um, and I do really appreciate the words people are sending, especially when they're in uh, faraway countries or people who have visited Ireland. I got a beautiful message about someone coming from South Africa, I think, and listening to Fireside driving around in the car. And that was a beautiful message to read. I really appreciate it. So if you have messaged me, thank you so much. I will reply to you. And um, please do continue to send them on if you have any thoughts 
or story suggestions or what you like, what you don't like, all are welcome. Um, but I thank you so much to Paddy and Alan here at Headstuff. Thank you so much to Jamie, my editor, for continuing to edit this podcast. And thank you all so much for listening. I, I'll see you all. You'll hear me next time around the fireside. Thank you and goodbye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.